This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Sign. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. Our guest today on the Music Buzz Podcast is Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Steve Boone bass player for the Love and Spoonful. From late 1965 to mid-67, the Spoonful reeled off nine top 20 hits, including Do You Believe in Magic, Daydream, Nashville Cats, Summer in the City, and more. The group was a wellspring of sunny, feel-good singles. So welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Steve Boone. Well, thanks, Andy, Dane, and you're good to be here. It's an honor for this Spoonful fanatic to get to talk to you today. Well, thank you. The Love of Spoonful was one of the greatest American bands of the 60s and of all time. And your old bandmate, John Sebastian, was gracious enough to play harmonica and guitar on my pandemic-themed album, Songs from Isolation, in 2020. His enthusiasm was contagious, his playing was fabulous, and I'll be eternally grateful for his generosity doing that. And just before I started spewing out the songs for that record, like two weeks before the pandemic, I think, Yourself, John Sebastian and Joe Butler, reunited for the first time in 20 years with the Wild Honey Orchestra to revisit that Spoonful catalog in a benefit for autism. And I've seen the footage, and man, it's absolutely fantastic. Can you tell us how this concert came about and what it meant to you personally? Well, you know, first let me comment on John's Maltar plan. And, you know, he's a little bit of an unrecognized talent, although some people know how good he is. John, John is really one of the, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, one of the foremost blues harp players in the country, if not the whole world. And uh, his performance on a lot of our records with Mouth Harp, especially Night Owl Blues, is just tremendous. So, thank you for that. And uh, what was the second part of your question? I, I'm having senior moments here, <laughs> dude. That's okay. When you guys all got back together in 2020, right before the pandemic hit. For the Wild Honey Orchestra thing, it's like, what? I mean, that had to have been, it'd been 20 years since you guys had, well, I guess it was when you got inducted to the Hall of Fame and my boss, Mr. Mellicamp, inducted you guys. Was the time before that. That's right, he did. Yeah, but that's the last time you guys had played together until that uh, benefit, correct? Yes, and John did a great introduction. I meant to, I think I did compliment him in person, but I, I always thought he did a fabulous job on introducing us, so I appreciated that. And the Wild Honey gig, I didn't really know much about Wild Honey. I'm an East Coast guy, but some friends of mine called me up and said, you know, I hear they're thinking about you guys. What are you thinking? And I got a little bit of background from them. 
And then I contacted one of the producers of the Wild Honey event and uh, and talked to us. I said, well, who's coming? He said, well, John and Joe committed. So I said, well, count me in then because it really sounded like a good thing and supporting a very, very, very good cause. So. And I had spoken to John about this and told him I had seen little clips on, on YouTube. Is there going to be or is there a, like a DVD that can be purchased? Because uh, any fan of the Love and Spoonful would absolutely go bonkers uh seeing this footage or and listening i just wondered if there was a dvd available of that show yeah there is i wish i had at hand uh, the information i need to give you to contact it but if you get a hold of of the wild honey team they'll direct you to it uh i have a copy myself it's, it was a real good job they did on it so yeah it is available i'm just not quite sure of how to send you in the direction well, we can tell our fans, uh, and love a spoonful fans to, to, uh, it's, it is the wild honey orchestra benefit for autism. And it was the 2021 that's available on DVD. If you guys might have to search around a little bit, but well worth searching out. I thought everybody did a fantastic, the first tune you guys did, it wasn't mobile line or what was the very first song you guys did at that show when you, when it was just you and Joe and John. You're taxing my memory here, but let me think if I can remember correctly. I I don't think it was Mobile Line. It could have been because John and I have played that song, but I think it might have been the, the Coffee Blues by Mr. That's what John it was. Herbler. Yeah, that's a good tune. It has the line, Love My Baby by the Love and Spoonful, right? That's correct. That's where the name came from. You guys were one of my, uh, one of my favorite bands back in the day, and we're not doing to where you can see us, but I'm holding... Hotter than a match head, life on the run with love a spoonful. Your great book. I encourage everybody to check that out. It's really fantastic. It's a fantastic read. I've also got a book. Do you believe in magic? The story of the love and spoonful by Simon Wordsworth. And I paid dearly for this thing. It's a pretty interesting book. Do you have a copy of that, Steve? I do. Simon is a, a one of the most talented researchers I've ever had dealings with. And I was a little apprehensive at first. Simon actually came to the States and visited with us uh, 20 years ago, I think it is now approaching, when the band uh, first reformed and getting back together again. And uh, he was a typical Brit. I kind of was a little concerned it was going to be a Fleet Street version, but it wasn't. It was. A, he's a wonderful researcher, and I've kept tracks on the uh, progress of... Uh, William Magic, the, the story that Simon told in his book, and I think it's a wonderful job, and uh, I think very highly of Simon. He came up with some research on my family just recently that was so in-depth. My father worked for Franklin D. Roosevelt before World War II, and so it was an interesting family history that we've never been able to track down because I don't have the skills of research that Simon has, and he was very helpful in getting that stuff together for us. That's super cool. What what more can you tell us about that, if anything? FDR, as you know, had polio, and uh, he had a foundation down in Warm Springs, Georgia, with what they would call today the Summer White House. But it was in a uh, an area where there was healing waters that uh, polio victims would go to and get registered and be part of the the therapy would be to get in these pools that would regenerate their nervous system and enable them, in some cases, not all, to be able to walk again. And so my dad was an administrator. He, my father's family, his father before him, uh, grew up in the hotel business. And so 
it was a natural fit for him. And uh, it was right before World War II, and and uh, he was uh, at that time he was like thirty something years old, too old to join the Marines. But he got, I think, some political influence pulled, and he was able to get into the Marine Corps in nineteen forty three, and got went overseas to fight for the country. And so I always considered that a high mark in his relationship with FDR. Wow, that's a wild story, man. You were a Marine kid, weren't you? Yes, I was born at Camp Lejeune, and I was christened by the base commander at Camp Lejeune to be the future commandant of the Marine Corps. <laughs> Unfortunately, a car wreck when I was 16 years old put me at 4F status and not able to serve, and so I didn't ever make it to the Marine Corps, but I thought making it to the Love and Spoonful was pretty darn cool, too. So, <laughs> Yeah, you think? <laughs> I know that you're an avid sailor, from what I read, um, and I know you, you wish you were, you love car racing, though I don't quite understand after a hundred mile per hour car accident, how you'd want to embrace that again. But, um, you also, um, understand wanted to fly with the Marines. Did you ever fly privately and take lessons as a pilot? I did. I actually, uh, accomplished my, uh, my, uh, pilot's license and then, for a variety of reasons, I let the uh, the medical uh, review elapse, and so I I don't fly anymore. It was a wonderful experience, and it got me to live a dream that I had ever since I was a small kid. But uh, yeah, that's uh, it's an expensive hobby, and so I kind of have other expensive hobbies too, and I try to keep them all managed. Well, yeah, to, to own to own a sailboat and a, and a private plane, I mean that that would be <laughs> that would be taxing in every respect of the. World. The sailing I still do. I just restored a, a hurricane damaged sailboat uh, in my backyard here. And so I keep in touch with the water. It's a wonderful place for me to be comfortable in. Well, I'm, I'm no stranger to Cartagena from the late 70s and the early 80s. And I, I read how you did some fairly long and brave runs from Colombia to the U.S. <laughs> Absolutely. It was really a high point. And I'm not making a joke here. I, I thought that the enterprise itself was very exciting, uh, and skills skills required, and uh, and then, you know no letting up from the pressure that's involved with it. And I just feel I know it was against the law, and I eventually got caught uh, and had to pay my price. That you get caught when you do something bad, you pay a price, which I did. But I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of it. I had a great time doing it. It was very exciting. Well, you you were on the green side of that fence anyway, so you you know there's nothing to be embarrassed about. You know the world finally caught up with your wisdom. Yeah, right. I agree with you. I that's my feelings entirely about that subject. I think you could float around anywhere with a big bale full of that stuff these days, and nobody would mess with you much. No kidding. You mentioned Brits earlier. Um, I just for the record, I didn't know if you knew that you were Herman's Hermit's favorite band. In, in England during the 60s. <laughs> I did know that. And in fact, I've come across paths with Peter Noon quite a few times on the road. He's a terrific entertainer. And yeah. in addition to being a terrific entertainer, he's a wonderfully warm person to know. He's really very friendly and outgoing. And I did know that comment. I've seen it before. Well, the spoon, I lived in England. I was a transplant from North America. So anytime I felt a little homesick, Radio Caroline was playing the pirate radio station, Radio Caroline, was playing uh, uh, hot in the, in the city, you know, like uh, somewhere in the city. That was like my conduit to North America. So thank you for that. 
Well, thank Radio Caroline, too. It was a noble enterprise. Indeed. So, Steve, I've got a question to ask you. You're talking about Herman's Hermits, and I've talked to your bandmate, uh, John, many times at length when we were working on that record he was so generous to work on. And he told me some great stories, and I'd kind of like to hear your take on them. Uh, but first of all, there's there's a well-known picture of Paul McCartney walking around with Hums of the Love and Spoonful. Have you seen that picture? No, I have. In fact, I have it in my ready manual here, so I'm not in the room where it is. But yes, I have seen that. Picture. Okay. I mean, I figured you guys would get a kick out of that. Come on now. And I know that they were very enamored of uh, Daydream and that Paul, that was the inspiration for Good Day Sunshine. Uh, that's well that's right. done. And then... John Sebastian told me that there's, I think it was when they were making maybe let it be. I was hoping I would see it. Cause I've seen, or the, you know, the footage that they just came out with a year ago of when they were making the let it be record uh, that there's a snippet of him playing daydream, but he's got the chords wrong and Harrison kind of reprimands him. That's <laughs> the wrong chord. Anyway, <laughs> he also told me a story about when you guys went to see the Beatles at Shea stadium. That was quite an event. Will you tell tell us about how that happened and what you ended up doing before the show and all that stuff? I think our listeners would get a kick out of this. Well, obviously, and of course, we were all all four of us were major fans of the of the Beatles and and their music. And so, uh, when we knew they were coming to Shea Stadium, now remember, uh, Summer in the City had just come out and was currently riding the top of the charts when that uh, concert took place. And this so is nineteen sixty six. 66 that's correct 66. in august yep and uh and we decided to just go without any kind of warning or precautions taken and so when we got to shea stadium i was with uh with joe butler and zolly john and his girlfriend Lori were off separately but we were basically in the same area behind the third base dugout and uh the crowds were coming in and nothing seemed to be out of the normal at first, but then all of a sudden, I noticed up looking up the, the stands, there was two police officers standing there, and they didn't seem to be paying much attention to us, but I saw them turn around real quickly, and there was like a, a couple of young ladies had stood up and were shouting, Joe, 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 they had spotted Joe Butler, apparently. And, uh, of course, we had a number one record, so the, the entire one quarter of the stadium stood up in unison and kind of merged forward towards where we were sitting. And those poor police officers, I think they probably went completely blank because they, what were we going to do to stop 5,000 teeny boppers heading our way? And it was just, it was a great, you know, they made a, a call to the main office. The main office said, well, just take them into the dressing room, which was the dugout. And I'm not the dugout. I mean the dressing room, the uh, the showers. We're the dressing room. I guess you call it a dressing room in sports. I'm not sure. But anyway, they were in there preparing for their concert, and they couldn't have been nicer. I mean, they just welcomed us warmly, and we just had a great half an hour of conversation and talking with them about it. And a real funny story I'll share with you. You know, I was admiring Paul's bass, and of course he's a he's a left-handed player, and I'm not. And he said, here, play it. And I said, well, Paul, you know, you know, I'm not left-handed. He said, well, just see if you like it. And I put it around my neck and I was kind of trying to make some notes without sounding like an idiot. And so 
after that little bit was over and I handed it back to him, I said, well, that's a fabulous bass. It frets real nice. And I wish it was a right-handed model so I could play it. He says, I tell you what, Mike, when I get back home, I'm going to send you one on the right-handed style. And of course it never came. And I never really took his comment very seriously. But when we were getting inducted into the Hall of Fame, Paul was at a table right in front of the stand where we were all giving our little speeches. And I, I knew that I couldn't be so rude as to say something, but I was tempted to say, and Paul, it's been 30 years. Where's that bass guitar? <laughs> you should where's, where's that Hofner at, bud? <laughs> well, Paul in particular was very gracious and a very friendly person. I, I really enjoyed getting the chance to try. And I admire the hell out of him as a bass player. You know, he broke some new ground with bass playing on pop records. And uh, I've always admired his style and the way he chose to put his bass parts on the record. Just excellent playing and excellent creative thought, too. Well, speaking of bass, uh, this is this is the point in, in every podcast when I bring up like five essential something or others. And I wanted to talk about five Steve Boone essential bass lines that every bass player should know uh, that they could learn from if they don't know it. Um, if that's, if I may be so bold, uh, the number one on my list is jug band music. That's one of the coolest yeah. bass lines to ever kick off a song. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize uh, that's a song. Uh, Give me three steps by Leonard Skinner borrowed heavily from, I mean, stole really this is the same melody, you know, right. uh, but, yeah, I've but, heard, I've heard that comment before. But what a great, what a cool, what a great baseline, man. One of my favorites. Very cool. Wait, I, I thank you very much for that. You know, I, I do not consider myself an extremely accomplished bass player. Uh, I've, I was very fortunate to be gifted with a lot of talent and, and, and ability to put that talent to use uh, during the period that the Spoonful was active. Uh, and that bass line came to me when I first learned guitar, I learned it on a, an electric guitar and I was tempted to learn guitar rock lines, but I made myself not do that thinking that that's not the way a bass. I knew I was going to be a bass player, but I was learning on guitar and I just resisted the idea to play lines like on jug band music. But when it came time in the studio to come up with the part, it flowed naturally. I, no thought at all into it. it just I picked up the guitar and played along with the basic track, and it just was, it worked out perfectly. So thank you for that compliment. I appreciate it. Well, it sure did. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite songs, and what a great line. Uh, the second song I had on my list, it, it it's one of my favorite uh, songs uh, that the Spoonful did. Did you ever have to make up your mind? The way the two guitars and your bass work together is is perfect it's almost like like a great big keyboard playing through the song or something i don't even know how to describe it it's incredible th that feel of that track well let me tell you something that is i consider that's a high point of my symbiosis with the bass parts of the spoonful recording it just really worked perfectly you described it ideally there how you just did and uh the whole song plays with a very unique syncopation to it that uh, I really don't know where it came from. It just came out. And like I said, that was a magical period for my creativity. Stuff came from an area I didn't even know I had. And so, uh, I, but it's still to this day, when I play that song in concert, it's just a wonderful bass part. And it works so well with the drummer 
that we just have a real sync feeling between the two of us. I've always, my personal view of bass and popular music is that it gives a note to the bass drum. And, uh, and I, my philosophy is always to play with that bass drum and don't stray off the reservation very far because you'll get out of sync real quick. And so I try to keep my, my parts focused on the primary bass foot not all the time does it work perfectly, but it's always worked well for me in general. So that's what my philosophy on playing bass and popular rock and roll, I guess you would call it. I think it served you well. I've I, I read where you, you, you consider your roots folk music, perhaps more than rock. And I think because of that, that natural sense of melody, apart from serving, you know, the, the, the foundation of the song and the bass drum, um, you know, you're, like like Dane is saying, your your music, I think, because of the folk roots you have, made you serve the song, perhaps more than a lot of rock players who are just kind of pure energy. Well, you know, when we when the band was first starting up, uh, I told John, I said, you know, you're not going to find a bass player in the folk music set because they're going to kind of want to always play lines, uh, and by lines I mean guitar riffs. And uh, guitar riffs don't work with the rock bass. They don't. They've got to work with the bass drum. And so John was John was totally on board with that philosophy. He said, I totally support you, and I think that's an excellent way to look at it. And so, therefore, I try to not only keep it simple, but to keep it so poised on the beat, which is so important that the beat feels really well-synced and unified, that uh, it's a, it's almost a religion for me. And when I hear, you know, Jaco Pastorius is one of the most gifted musicians I've ever come across, but I couldn't listen to his bass playing. It was just so over the map, <laughs> high speed and high energy. And I mean, it, I didn't like it. And I, and I admit he was so talented with one hand, he could play rings around me. But I did, it's not my style. My style is to keep it very simple and very synced in with the bass drum. One thing I noticed on your very first record, which when I was doing those sessions with John, I mean, I've like I said, I had I had all your records when I was a kid growing up. Uh, but the first record, I guess I didn't pay quite as much attention to as I did some of the others until recently. And now that's my favorite record in a way, because it sounds like you guys had just busted your ass rehearsing a bunch. A lot of times, like a first album, it's like, whoa, these guys are firecracker hot. It's like uh, NRBQ stole their whole thing from the very first Love and Spoonful record, kind of. And a couple of those songs, the, the blues tunes that you did, like Blues in the Bottle, man, I love what you did on that. It's like the one five pivot, but you in places where you wouldn't think the bass player might start walking you did and i just thought what you did on that what you did on sporting life another the love the passing tones that first record really speaks to me as a live band and which reminds me of we've had a bunch of guests uh in the past leland sklar the guys from pablo cruz and some others who saw you guys open for the beach boys when you on your first go around or whenever that was and they said you you blew them away no contest every one of them well that's very nice to hear that and you know uh i like to think that my niche in, in the lore of, of bass players and rock and roll is that he kept it simple 
And I think there's a lot of merit in keeping it simple, but you have, to, in addition to simple, you have to have emphasis. And so you have to kind of separate the parts that need emphasis from the parts that are just bringing up the rear. And uh, if you keep it simple and emphasize the primary notes, it usually comes out pretty good. So that's been my personal philosophy. And also, I started out my life performing in a, in a rock band that had a, a saxophone player, King Charles Cannon from Brooklyn. He's a, a black man from Brooklyn who really played with everybody. When I say everybody, I mean everybody. He mentored me when I was complaining that I couldn't read the cheat sheets to get into standards and things like that. He gave me some tips on how to do it that really set me on a proper course for how to play the bass in an arrangement band. And I mm. think that helped so much that I credit King Charles with being one of my, and my brother Skip, of course, with being the mentors that really set me on the right path as a bass player. I, I, I'm curious about the tilting of the mirror from the more mellow vibe that, you know, you, don't, you didn't have to be so nice. And uh, do you believe in magic had those, those songs you, you could almost hear so, I mean, I don't mean this as anything except a compliment, but with a different arrangement, Peter, Paul and Mary could have sung those songs or the association. Then suddenly out of nowhere, Summer in the City, just like She's Not There by the Zombies, just had that real unique kind of energy and magic. It was progressive rock. It was like the first progressive rock tune with maybe eight miles high. Yeah, it was just, it was astounding to hear you go from what you say are, are the folk roots of you and John. And then suddenly this song is magic. And plus you co-wrote it. So tell us about how that came about you. I mean, that's one of the indisputably classic songs and you co-wrote it. So t tell us about that, Steve, how, how that song came about. And we're talking about, you didn't have to be so nice, not summer in the city. Right? Well, we're talking about, that's the other one I was going to bring up. Cause you co-wrote two of the most classic rock songs that I've ever heard. And so tell us about, did you know that that inspired Brian Wilson to write God Only Knows? You didn't have to be so nice. I, I, I had heard that, you know, and in fact, when uh, they were recording, uh, I forget the, which album it was, I was riding around with Dennis in his Corvette one day, he says, you want to go to a session? And uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the title, but they were doing that cello overdrop on it. Uh, Go, um, good vibrations. Uh, good vibrations. Oh, good vibrations. Yeah. Good vibrations, and they were overdubbing the cello part, and I was just mesmerized by how cool Brian was as a producer. And then we got to talking, and he shared that with me in that conversation. It was very cool, and I've always been, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier in this comment about summer in the city and how it sort of changed the dynamic to the spoonful's perception. I grew up. In New York, in those days, you were either a rocker or a surfer, and there wasn't many surfers on the East Coast. It was pretty much a West Coast thing. So really, the rockers were the East Coast musicians, and the surfers stayed on the West Coast, L.A., San Francisco, and, and those areas. But when the band got out there, and it was all of a sudden, my friends were going, are you guys ever going to make a rock record? And they were joking, of course, but then Summer in the City came out and they went, okay, you did it. You guys really broke the ranks now and you're one of us. Mm. And so not that I was 
putting anything down about the mellow side. I actually enjoy the mellow side of our music. It's more in my personality is a little bit, a little bit more mellow than, than ragged. So, uh, so when you went to the session, Dennis was, was Carol there? Was, was the crew there? No, it was just an overdub session. Uh, okay. Yeah. The, yeah. The tracking was already done and they were overdubbing the cello part. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it sticks with me to this day. Like one of my freshest memories hearing that cello overdub. It was just oh, bad. Wow. And Brian, and Brian really, he gets the credit he deserves and he really does deserve it. He had the right ear for the right time. Mm-hmm. No question. So, uh, and you didn't have to be so nice. What was your role in the, in the composition of that song? Here's what happened. I mean, it gets told in a variety of ways, but here's what really happened. One night, after the spoonful had already had our first release, Do You Believe in Magic, it was just coming out. And I went over to Joe Butler's girlfriend's house one night to visit with them and down in the West Village. And uh, they had a baby grand in the apartment. And I sat down and I started playing this part that I'd heard in my head, but I hadn't had access to a keyboard. And so this is the first time and I came up with the chord structures of the song. I just still didn't have any words for it, but I had the basic, the descending line, and then the chord changes of the verse. I had that intact. And then I have been told by Zolly that he wanted me to meet this girl from Toronto that he knew very well. It was a dear friend of his from Toronto. And she was going to come to New York to visit. He says, Boone, I want you to meet this girl. You're going to fall in love with her. And so we arranged to meet Nareek Wilde, this terrific gal, and she really was just a fabulous, fabulous person. But we didn't hit it off romantically. We just we just became very good friends and really admired each other. And, and I came away with this thought of, you didn't have to be so nice. I would have liked you anyway. Uh, and so it just stuck with me. And then the next day I went to see John. I said, John, I got this idea. What do you think? And I played through the chord changes. And I didn't have an arrangement yet, but I gave him the basic idea of the sending line to start it. And then he and I sat down and finished off the lyrics for it. So that's nice. my my favorite song in terms of anything I had of involvement in the writing process for. Well, how about Summer in the City, though? You're, you're listed as a writer on that song, correct? Well, Summer in the City was an arrangement. I didn't have anything to do with writing the song itself. It was the recording that I came in with the middle eight. That little West Side well, Story, West Side Story. Yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah. It, one of my favorite uh, movie soundtracks was the West Side was uh, West Side Story soundtrack, and that was a big influence on me. And I did take piano lessons as a kid. I, I just couldn't handle all the repetitive practicing you had to do with inversions and chord structure. But I did learn the basic. I call life in the key of C. I play everything on a keyboard in C and then transpose it for whatever needed for the vocals and things like that. But so piano parts were really something I always messed with. And I was constantly, when we'd be in the studio, I would sit down on the studio piano and play that 12 note part. And and then when we were recording the song, Summer in the City, John said, you know, we need a middle eight for this. Why don't we give... Boom, play that part on the keyboard for me. And so I sat down and played it, and everybody, the producer and all the band members of the band and a couple of the record company guys were there were all saying, that's the part that has to go in there. So I got the credit for being the creator of the 
the middle eight section. Well, yeah, man, it's perfect. That song, you couldn't have that song without that. That makes mm -hmm. it, that's what makes it progressive, you know? Totally, yeah. I, I think so, too. Fabulous. I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but that was really, I thought, <laughs> it's okay. Really nice. Dude, you can blow it's your so own good. horn about, about co-writing Summer in the City, one of the maybe top 10 songs that have ever been recorded. I think you can toot your horn about that a little bit. That's okay, well, man. I'm, well, thank you, and I will. I'll go and take your hint for it. Hell, Yes. <laughs> man you're the guest on the podcast steve so you you can, you can that's do right you need yeah. yeah that's right man hey tell these guys i i know that i know this story from because i read your book and but tell these guys about the being in the studio with dylan you guys were rehearsing and then john gets a call and then you both go and then you played bass in 60 on the bringing bringing it all back home sessions in 65 tell us that little anecdote if you could well, you know, I had in December of 64, I had just come back from Europe on my motorcycle trip trying to track down the musical scene that was over there. And I met John Zolly in mid-December 64, and we decided we wanted to put a band together. And we said, I've got a guy out on Long Island who has a hotel that's closed for the winter. He's the manager of it, but he's also a fine drummer. I played with him. And so I called up Jan Buechner. And I said, Jen, is there any chance that you might be interested in joining this band we're starting? And he said, well, let me give it a shot. And I said, well, how about rehearsing in your hotel? He said, well, that's a stretch, but let me see if I can work it out with the owners. And they gave him permission. So we went out and we were rehearsing at this close for the winter hotel called the Bull's Head Inn in Bridgehampton, Long Island. And the phone rang on the second night we were there. And I answered the phone and I said, hello. And this voice said, uh, is John Sebastian there? And I said, yeah, can I tell him who's calling? And he said, this is Bob Dylan. And I said, yeah, sure. But who can I tell him who's calling? And uh, he said, no, 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 this is Bob Dylan. I'm a friend of John's. And I said, okay, if that's what you say, John, the phone's for you. <laughs> so John can over and take the phone. And I'm, I'm a huge Dylan fan. This was like, I didn't believe it. I thought it was somebody putting me on. Well, I had been learning Dylan songs and playing them at beach parties. And it was just like, this guy is right up there at the top shelf for me. And so Boy, no kidding. John got off the phone and he said, because I'm the only one that had a car and a little Austin Healy sports car is that. And I said, John, you need a ride into the city? He said, yeah, I do. And he said, and bring your base with you. And I said, why? He said, well, just bring it. And so we got in my Austin Healy, drove into New York, went to Studio B, Columbia Studio B, a legendary studio. And I walk in the door and there's this guy, Bob Dylan. He's just acting like one of us. I mean, it was just so cool, and he was so calm. And he, first he asked John to play the parts. And John tried bass, and after about half an hour of trying, he said, listen, this guy's with me. He's a bass player. Why don't you ask him to play? And so I was a little nervous being asked in that situation, but I said, what the heck have I got to lose here? So I, Bob asked me if I'd like to play, and so I played without much learning. I'm a slow learner, too. That's one of my handicaps. I don't learn fast. And uh, I listened to the tracks, and I said, well, all I can do is play what I feel. Like, don't give me lines you want me to play, because I, it would be too slow to learn them. He said, well, play what you want. So I did, and I played on four of the cuts. And I think the only one of my playing that got on to bring it all back home album was Maggie's Farm. Wow. When you, listen, when you listen to Baggy's Farm and you compare it to Steve Boone on the Spoonful Records, you can tell that it's my style of playing. Now, Harvey gonna... Brooks also played on those sessions, so nobody yeah. really knows. So once there was a radio, I mean, a, a, 
an online group and and they called me up to do an interview and uh, they were you know saying things like well what is this story about dylan you never played on a dylan album i said well i guess i did i said well how can you prove it and they were called specter prop you ever heard of them Mm-mm, no. It was a it was a group of music high, high energy music fans that based their interest around Phil Spector's recordings, but also oh. they knew everything about everyone in pop music, and so they said Steve Boone never played on a Dylan session. And then somebody that was listening to the radio program that they said that came up with a pay stub for me from Columbia Records that proved I was playing on it. Oh wow! And so that was kind of I kind of took great satisfaction in letting them know that I had just pay stub. Well, yeah. You want to change yeah. the story? Yeah, sorry, pal, but look at this. I got do proof right here. Do you still have that pay stub, Steve? Uh, no, I don't. You know, when I moved on to my sailboat, I left everything with my parents and. They moved a couple of times after I was away, and a lot of my stuff got lost in those moves, and the pay uh, stub being one of them. But no. that's okay. It's still a fond memory, and I, I can never lose that. Well, you Boy, played no on kidding. Maggie's no. Farm. I mean, come on, man. You know, come on now. It doesn't get. That's my favorite Bob Dylan record. That in in Highway sixty one. So wow. Yeah, no, bringing it all back home is my favorite too, and you know the songs were very relatable for me. I really understood his structure. And the way he came about creating his structures, I really, I was in, I was actually took cues from it for my own writing benefits. I bet. Yeah. Did you guys, did you guys go out partying after you did that too? That's the best, that's part I want to hear. It was great. Well, you know, he had, we had my little Austin Huey sports car and I, and uh, Bobby Newworth was there too. And four of us was not going to fit in an Austin Huey. So Bob said, I've got my station wagon here. And so it was a Plymouth, that's a brand you don't hear of anymore. It was a Plymouth station wagon, and, and we drove around Manhattan smoking dope and talking about riding motorcycles. Of course, me and Dylan were the only ones who rode motorcycles. The other two guys were just listening in on the conversation. I think Newworth might have rode too, but I've always been a, a two-wheel rider. So, uh, yeah, we had a great didn't Dylan ride a Triumph? There's pictures of him with yeah, a Triumph. Yeah, I did too at the time. I had a I had a Tiger Cub at that time. Nice. And so we had we had a lot to share and a lot to talk about. Dylan was a very cool guy, you know. For somebody that was so high up the food chain, he could have very easily been a little standoffish, but he wasn't. He was just a marvelously welcoming person and an easy conversationalist. It was just a really great experience for me, and it gave me a ton of confidence going into this love and spoonful thing where we were about to turn the wick up on that. that that's awesome i got a question for you steve um i was just doing in, in kind of the research for this podcast it says 56 years ago um january of this january is when you guys made your debut on the ed sullivan show we've talked to a few other people wow. on the show that have um that were on the Ed Sullivan show. I'd just love for you to take us back to what was your experience. And I know you guys were on there more than once, but uh, what was your experience and memories of being on that show? Well, if you go back into the 1950s and early 1960s on Sunday night, there was only one show on television and everybody watched everybody young, old and not even born yet heard it. (laughs) Uh, And that was of course the uh, Ed Sullivan show. And so when the opportunity came up, we also knew Ed Sullivan was a retired boxer who was a sports writer and did not like rock and roll. He thought it was the death of, of good music. But 
if he liked you, because that was a live show, that was not recorded and, and you know, performed uh, from the tape. It was live, and so you better be right, because it's going to be out there whether you like it or not. And so he gave us such a green light on how we could be presented that over the course of about seven appearances on the Ed Sullivan Show, he gave us progressively more and more opportunity to perform in the highest level of television uh, quality at that time. I mean, it was black and white TV was fading out and color was coming in. He put us on this elaborate makeup of uh, doing, do you believe in magic with the things changing where the, and John had his big dog in the show. If you ever see it, it's a wonderful video of do you believe in magic on the Ed Sullivan show. But anyway, the long story short is that, that uh, Ed Sullivan could not have been uh, more friendly towards us as a rock and roll band as he, as he was towards anybody, including the Beatles. So he really did like, I think he appreciated that we were a New York based band too, because he was a dyed in the wool New Yorker. Right. And so uh, Ed Sullivan and Bob Trek, his son-in-law and the producer of the shows really liked the Spoonful's music too. And so, we were treated really very nicely by the Ed Sullivan show and by Bob Preck, the producer, and of course, Ed himself. So I look back on those shows with extremely fond memory. I was fascinated to know that you almost became the monkeys for a few minutes. It was an interesting story. It's one of those ones could go one way, could go the other way. Well, anyway, after Magic had been a hit and we were back on in New York, uh, taking a break from touring, and manager called us up, all four of us, and said, come down, meet me in my office. I want you to meet some guys. So we go, what's it about? I'll tell you when you get here. So we got there, and he, all we were told was these two producers want to pitch an idea to you. And I said, great, what's here? So we went into this room, big long table, and we sat down. And I can't remember the name of the producers, but they were the ones who ended up producing the monkeys. But they pitched this idea of a television show, much like the Help movie by the Beatles where there's going to be inter interaction with the, the band playing music and everyday life and all this stuff, and maybe some comedy thrown in on top of it. And we thought it was a good presentation, but then when the, 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 the seal, the deal was made, it was like, well, you're going to have to change your name to the monkeys. No. And, you know, we no said, way. can we take a break here? And we went into another room and all four of us said, you know, we just had a hit record with the Love and Spoonful. Supposing this show was a bomb and nobody likes it, and we're the monkeys without a hit record. Yeah. Right. And so, we, in the space of five minutes, we made a firm decision: we're not doing it. And, uh, smartest, and so smartest we thing you guys ever did. Well, you know, it was a night. It was a very generous offer, but I, sure. I, I think that there's a lot of chances that it wouldn't have happened because you know who knows what's going to make the sweet spot of success work for you. Yeah. So yeah. I was, I thought we had, you know, we had our sophomore jinx song in the can and ready to go, but you didn't have to be so nice. We we were quite sure that was going to be a hit as well. And why change your name? Is you're going to have two hits under your belts and go with an operation that might be something that nobody even wants to know about. So we, we thought about it for about five minutes and said to our manager, tell him that thanks for the offer, but no thanks. Where did your band name come from? Um, apart from the obvious presumption, the erroneous presumption that it was, you know, a drug-based name. I know it was not. Yeah, let me put a quick ending to that conversation because that was not it. In fact, 
I'm playing on a cruise at the end of this month where uh, I'm going to do some dialogue that's describing how the Love and Spoonful came about and what we had to do with the emergence of the term folk rock. And yeah. in that conversation, in that conversation is that the name of the band, how did it come about? And everybody wants to know those kind of facts and factoids. And so when the band first got together, when John and Zolly and Steve were first jamming together in that close for the afternoon coffee house down in the village, we went through the songs that we were all personally familiar with, but John brought some songs that I had never heard before. And they were jug band songs, which I only vaguely knew what a jug band was. I didn't know much about it. Yeah. But John said, this is some inspirations that I've gotten recently. And I think there's some really good territory we can cover here if we bring some of this jug band influence into our music. And so yeah, well, one of the guys that used to come to Greenwich Village and perform there was a guy named Mississippi John Hurt. Now, I'd heard of him, so I, that caught my attention. And he said, he's got a song called Coffee Blues. And in that song, and he played it for us on the guitar, he said, the opening line is, I love my baby by the Love and Spoonful. And he said, I'd like to see this band called the Love and Spoonful. And at first I was like, what? That's not a rock band name. And so it never occurred to us that people were going to think it was the Spoonful of Heroin. But of course, that did get put out there into the open. But really, we just... We adopted drug band music as our good time music. And uh, the name came from that song by Mississippi John Hurt called Coffee Blues. And that was what we opened the uh, Wild Honey Show with. A good name is like a tail that wags the dog. I mean, it, if you were to isolate the Beatles, it's not to my mind or to my ear a great sounding rock band name, but they seem to have done pretty well for themselves. You know, um, there's lots of lots of names that at first blush you might think us ah, google the company google i would have i would have passed on that name they seem to have done well for themselves well, the love and the love and spoonful is a it's a name you're not going to forget exactly yeah that's I mean, right it's, it's that's like true. it's like no other name in well, rock music so my first that's a good that. point it yeah. is a good point and it is it's your calling card yeah. Exactly. So it's like you yep. hand out a biz card and it has your name on it. So let's get our name out there. I resisted. I'll be you know, very honest with you. I resisted with John. I don't think this is a good name for a rock band. I was kind of living in the Stone Age at that point. But I came around to it. And once I did come around to it and I became more familiar with the jug bandy kind of stuff we were going to be bringing into the first album, i really glad I realized my error of my ways and went with the name it was a great name and it was a fabulous name and Fritz Richmond of the Jim Queskin Jug Band was who suggested to John that he listen to the John Hurt album that had coffee blues on it so Fritz Richmond no longer with us though who was the uh the what you would call the bass player they didn't have a bass they had a, a wash tub with a broomstick handle on them and so he he gave John the uh necessary push to use the love and spoonful as the name so thank you fritz nice. richmond from the far beyond yeah fritz well hey i'm holding a, a very odd pretty rare record i think i picked up a couple years ago when i i go out on the road i i like to go shopping around record stores it's it's watch shaken uh which came out on electra before your first record i think but i don't really know 
but it's got four songs. It's got good time music, almost grown. Don't bank on it, baby. And searching. Tell me about how did this thing come out? Was this before you got your deal with uh, Kama Sutra records or? Yeah, yeah, it was. And and here's the thing, Electra Records and Paul Rothschild, uh, who was a producer for Electra Records and Jack Holzman, the owner of the liquor label, really wanted to sign the Love and Spoonful. But, and we really liked them. They were a classy folk music uh, record label and they put out great product with great support. We really, we as a band wanted to sign with Electra, but they did not have any link to getting 45s on the air. That was a, in those days, that was a make or break fact when you're going to sign with a record label. Can they get those 45s out on 1010 Winds or WABC or all the big radio stations, KLMA in Oklahoma City? You had to get on the air with a 45 or you weren't going to make it. And we didn't think Electra had the necessary uh, power to get on, to break through that circle, of closed circle. And so we turned them down, but in turning them down, we said, because they had supported us in the very early days by fronting us a little money to buy amplifiers and things that we needed to get the band to be stage ready. And so in fairness to Paul and to Jack, the owner of the record label, we agreed to record those four songs, two of which were two of John's earliest compositions, uh, Don't Bank on a Baby and uh, Good Time Music. and so it was a, they agreed, and I'm so glad it happened because the rest of the talent on that album is some some pretty awesome talent on that album, including Eric Clapton. It's got Clapton and I think it's Winwood together. Yeah, it's called yeah. the Powerhouse. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. That's a, it's got Paul Butterfield Blues Band, but but I picked it up because you guys are on the cover. Obviously, uh, they were. Uh, you were one of the hottest groups in the country. They thought they bought to put you guys on the cover, of course. Uh, but it's just an interesting record. When we were rehearsing, when we were rehearsing in New York prior to our our second go around the night out, we were rehearsing in the basement of a hotel called the Hotel Albert, which was on Fifth <laughs> Avenue and Tenth Street down near Greenwich Village. And in the adjoining room in that basement, which was filled with puddles and just horrible stuff was this band, this awesome band performing who we got to know was the Paul Butterfield band. And, uh, you know, Sam lay on drums, man, what an impression that guy made on me. Oh, sure, man. He was killer. Yeah, no. So we were very, very honored to be working with those guys, you know, Mike Bloomfield, they're just fabulous musicians, you know, just really heart and soul guys. And they were very friendly towards us and we were friendly towards them. We got along. We didn't get in each other's way when we were rehearsing at the same time. So it was a that whole period of time from December 64 until the band kind of called it quits in, in late 69. Just magic. I, I can't tell you how I look back with fondness on that whole period of time, with few exceptions, of course. Was Folk City in the village um, active when you were there? Were you ever playing Folk City? Yeah, Gertie's Folk City was like a, was like one of the locations to work in, in in the village in those days. Right. I, I lived upstairs for two years <laughs> in New York. Oh, my goodness. Well, you heard everything then. <laughs> it got really loud in, in the period of time that I was living there. 
I can only imagine, believe me, because, you know, my brother had an apartment on West 4th Street right next to the garage there next to the Night Owl Cafe. And I think Gary's was right across the street from that garage. I don't remember exactly now, but it was on West 4th Street, wasn't it? I think it was. That was 3rd Street. Yeah, I'm sorry, you're right. West 3rd Street. What am I saying? I should remember that. It's where the Night Owl was Near Washington Park. Washington Square Park. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I remember now. Thank you. Well, I got one. I got one more question for you, Steve. So this is I I hope I get this right, because I'm not looking on any notes or anything. But I think I saw that. I don't know if it was the very last spoonful gig, but Zolly came with Eric Clapton and sit in the front row. Was that the last show or can you tell us about that? Must have been a trip. I can tell you it wasn't the last show, but for me, it might as well have been. I was. At that time, I was singing a song I wrote called Butchie's Tune in the show. Just me on acoustic guitar. And, uh, Beautiful song. Yo, thank you. Yeah, one of my favorite songs of all time, actually, that I ever wrote. And so I would do it in the performance in our concerts and then just as a one-off. And so I look out, when we get to that show, Zolly had just left, you know, a little while or Jerry Yester was now performing with us. And the band sounded great. We were still a great sounding band, even without Zolly's guitar playing. But when I look out into the audience as we start this concert, is Eric, Dolly, and about four or five other people from the music business that I don't recall exactly their names now, but there were people that I recognized immediately. And the girl I wanted to improve, to impress more than anybody, sitting there watching me from the front row. And I picked up the guitar and went up to sing Butchie's tune, and I couldn't remember a single word. And I, I was pretty, I was pretty buzzed at the time. And so I just took the guitar off, said, "John, play the next song." I can't do it. So that was kind of the end of the spoonful for me. I, I felt terrible, especially with Eric and Zolly sitting there looking at me. I'm sure, Zolly was laughing his head off that thing. But, but nonetheless, you know, it, it was just like I said, a very special time for me. I look back with very few unpleasant memories. Did you ever eat at Zolly's uh, restaurant in Kingston? Absolutely. Fabulous place. And I understand his daughter is keeping it going well. Yeah, yeah. Well, we played in Kingston. I was in a band in the 70s. We played in, in Kingston. And yeah, it was. Uh, and I've, I've, I've gone to that city several times since. I have friends up there. So yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. And I have to ask you, is it true you are a descendant of Daniel Boone? Absolutely. Actually, I'm a direct descendant of his brother, Squire. Boone wow. family all sprung out of the Philadelphia area, which is where the Boone... The Boone family came over from Germany in 1700, uh, and so we've had that continuation. And some of them moved down to Delaware, including Squire, and uh, so that's who I'm related directly to. But it's right in the Boone family; it's just not directly to Daniel. Yeah, very cool. So he wow. would be still a couple of generations removed. Would he be a great, 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 great uncle or a grandfather? Oh no, great uncle. Yeah. I'd cool. be a great uncle. Wow. Uh, yeah, like I said, Squire was my direct in line blood relative, but obviously he was Daniel's brother, so there was a very close connection. Sure. That's, That's fascinating. You know, I just met I just met somebody recently who lived in Delaware. You know, my family a lot of the Boons are buried in Barris Chapel, Delaware, where my both my parents are and uh it's very interesting to go there to see all the boons, 
But yeah, it's very interesting family history. And uh, the Boones came out of Philadelphia, but settled in Delaware and then moved into the hotel business in North Carolina and Pennsylvania and West Hampton, Long Island. So yeah, I've, I've lived all over the East Coast. One of my favorite bands ever. Absolutely. No As question. I, yeah, it was my comfort zone when I lived in England. It was just so lovely to hear. You know, the people I was listening to, of course, were the British invasion, but to listen to the mamas and papas and to a loving spoonful. And at that time, it was really lovely. Mamas Amazing. and the papas couldn't even touch the loving spoonful. Come on now. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> you want to start fighting, Hugh? Come on now. <laughs> they can't touch the spoons, man. <laughs> well, listen, you know, Zoe, I mean, uh, Mama Cass introduced John and Zoe. She's as much a member of the loving spoonful as anybody. Right, that's true. The mud, the mud ones, exactly. And so, you know, there's a lot of history. Well, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton used to come in from when he was a student at uh, Georgetown. He would come into the bar they were playing in the shadows in D.C. and listen to them. The mud really? Ones, that is. Yeah. So that would have been about that would have been about sixty four, probably that's early right. six or sixty three. Yeah. Okay. That's right. No, actually, that was a pretty cool. I, I've got that record someplace. That was interesting record. I was just messing with you, but but it was I still a magical put, I, time, man. It was just a very magical time, and and like I said before, it was so inspirational for me. I speak back on it as being my most creative period in my entire life, and uh, so I'm very, very, very gracious that I was able to participate with the band and be part of that whole scene. Well, tell us about some of the other bands. Like like I said, I, I know people talked about seeing you on that tour with the Beach Boys. Uh, who were some of the other people that you got to double bill with back in those days? Well, Paul Simon we toured with, the Beach Boys we toured with, uh, most of the time, one of the things that Love and Spoonful did that most people aren't aware of is that we brought rock music to the college campus. Uh, before the Spoonful started touring in college campuses, it was jazz and folk was what got played at college campus uh, concerts. It wasn't rock was looked down on as being not, not worthy of being in college uh, environment. And, and, and the Love and Spoonful our managers were smart enough to know that there's a great audience here. We did a show at Fordham University, and I forget what year it was. It might have been 67, but we got nine encores, nine wow. freaking encores with that show that we did at Fordham <laughs> University. We really did bring rock music. And then the other thing we did that really broadened our horizons was after Magic was a hit, our manager and, and our agent hooked us up with the Supremes and we did a bus tour with the Screams in the oh, southeastern right. United States. And I'm telling you, the first couple of concerts, the audience was 100% black, obviously. They were there to see the Supremes, and they would give us warm, kind of nice applause, pleasant, appreciative, but nothing big deal. But yeah. by the third show, I guess word had gotten out, and we were starting to get rave reactions from the uh, fans that came to see the, show, the Supremes and ended up here in 11 Spoonful in mm. addition to the Supremes. That's and awesome. we had a great tour. Actually, I got to sit with James Jamerson, the, maybe the all-time great rock bass player of all time, wow. in my opinion. Yes. And and I asked him I asked him to show me the correct way to play Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. And he said, well, show me how you play it. And I got out my bass and I said, that's the way white boys play it. 
Here, here's how you play it. So, <laughs> he, he showed me the way the real bass players play it. Wow. Yeah, he was unbelievable. It was just, it, it was just a great experience. Like I said, those four or five years was just, it was like magic. And it really was epitomized by the fact that our first song was Do You Believe in Magic? And I certainly say yes. Well, and you still hear these <laughs> those songs today. I just, I mean, it's on yeah. a commercial three or four times a day. Yeah. Uh, it, what, usually you guys' version, but other people, you know, I mean, the songs will, the band will live on forever and those songs will live on forever. That's for sure. True. I agree with you. I think, so. you know, one of the things I think that's in short supply in today's music scene of all genres is melody. Melody has gone, and I've always called melody the memory messenger. That's what makes people remember a song initially. You can't get the lyrics on the first listen, but you'll hear that melody and you'll be able to hum it after you've heard it one time. Sure. And so I think that more melody brought into the popular music scene is nothing but good for the overall uh, appreciation of, of rock music. I'm with you there, man. More melody. Please. More good songs like they were back then. Well, me and John are still working on songs. You know, we don't get enough time to spend together, but I do whenever I get up near him in Woodstock, I go and visit and spend a couple of days and kick some song ideas around. We got some good ideas of getting them finished. It's hard to find out where your niche will be when you're in your late 70s and almost 80 years old, but we're going to keep at it. There's no point in not trying. Man, please do. That'd be a record. That'd be a record I, a lot of people would go out and grab. Well, I'd uh, like to see it happen. I'm not making any predictions, but I'd love to see it happen. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for, for joining us, man. I can't say enough about, uh, you know, how, how thrilled we all were to, to connect with you and have a trip down memory lane, for sure. Thank you so much for the time. Well, I appreciate the conversation. You guys nailed it on getting the questions and the conversation were all right on. So thank you guys. Cheers to you. Thanks again for joining us. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.